This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, you're listening to New Books in History, a channel with the New Books Network. I'm Dexter Fergie. I'm very excited about the guest that I'll be speaking with today, Samuel Moyne. Um, and if you somehow don't know him, uh, Moyne is a historian who's written several books that really upended our understanding of the history of human rights. And so today we're going to talk about his latest book, which deals with a sort of neighbor to human rights history, the history of the humanization of war. The book is titled Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. It was published just last month by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, and it has really kickstarted uh, a lot of debate and some pushback. And so I'm just very excited to be speaking with Sam today. Um, so Sam, thanks for coming on to the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much, Dexter. Uh, and just to begin, um, I would love to hear how this project in particular began. Well, it's it's so hard, you know, in most cases to date the inception of projects. I mean, I probably most of the work I've been doing for about a decade on on human rights and international law date back to my time in law school in the late 90s and early 2000s. And I took a class on the laws of war before September 11th and before mm. it was kind of I guess, hip and interesting to a lot of people. Um, and so I've been thinking about it since then. But I I think the book more more recently is is kind of a response to my um, my anxiety with where Barack Obama took the war on terror. And I think it's pretty clear by the end of the book that I'm I'm disturbed by that event and and trying to place it in a long history uh, and also a, sh a shorter history of the laws of war and their trajectory over time. Yeah, like the book is definitely about Obama and Obama's administrations. Um, and uh, it's, I mean, in, in my opinion, it's like the, the really first stab at like historicizing Obama, you know, um, uh, on a monographic scale, especially his foreign policy. Um, and I think that that's actually a really useful place to start um, because it will kind of help um, uh, focus our discussion of what comes before. Um, but it's in Obama and, um, that you and you know his war on terror that you really see a new international order come into being. And so you know the, the way you put it um, at different points in the book, um, this you know you have one country um, that has the power to surveil and intervene with very little footprint in the territory of 
um, many ostensibly sovereign nations on the other side of the planet. Um, and you know, you you say that this is increasingly resembling a, a permanent global policing system. Um, do you want to say a little bit more about that? Sure. So, you know, it's the 20th anniversary just recently of September 11, 2001, and there's been a lot of talk about what those two decades have involved. I, I'm trying to add to that discussion the claim that there have been two, two fundamentally different wars on terror. Uh, the first one was declared immediately by George W. Bush, and it involved um, heavy footprint war in two countries. Um, and, you know, those wars were illegal under international law, um, but kind of Congress signed off on them under domestic law. And they were supported by a, a very broad mainstream. Um, but that first form of the war on terror went south really quickly, you know, within a few years. And Obama in running for office became the first of three presidential candidates in, in a row who won by selectively opposing uh, war and in particular by stigmatizing that first form of the war on terror. Uh, he won against Democrats like Hillary Clinton in, in the primaries and then Trump won against Republicans, uh, you know, when he began to lie about his own opposition to the Iraq war um, and then against Clinton again in the generals and Joe Biden came out against so-called forever war when running. But Obama, when he came to power in 2009, uh, didn't end the war on terror. He brought about what, what I'm calling this second form of the war on terror. And, you know, my claim is that it, it's marked by a, a few different features. Um, one is that it tends to involve, as you said, a lighter footprint or no footprint in the case of missiles from armed drones or, you know, planes or, you know, from the ground, uh, sta so-called standoff missiles. Um, an another is that it goes many more places. Um, and again, if you're concerned about the illegality, not of the way Bush conducted the war on terror with no holds barred, um, but with his illegal initiation of the interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq, then you ought to be really concerned about the expansion and space, not just the endurance and time of Obama's war um, to lots of lots and lots of places, including deep into sub-Saharan Africa, not just across, you know, the Middle East and Central Asia. But then, then, of course, my main point is that the distinctive feature of this second war on terror is its claimed and real humanization. That's to say, in part because of how the first war on terror was delegitimated, you know, with, it, it involved brutality, torture, um, prisoner abuse of, of, of different kinds. Um, the, the, the second form of the war on terror got legitimated through the claim that it was now in conformity with not the law prohibiting intervention, but the law requiring humane conduct of hostilities. And I noticed that Obama, whenever he defended 
his reinvention of the war on terror and the second new form stressed above all that it was the the best alternative, the humane alternative to the war war that he inherited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really useful to have this chronology up front. And just to um, say a little bit more about it, uh, the the Bush first iteration of the war on terror um, was, um, uh, you know, yeah, like it was filled with all these brutalities and atrocities and torture, etc. But one um, point about your book is that it was precisely um, uh, um, this that um, also made it limited. And then once you kind of eliminate these atrocities, you can then start opening up the war and terror geographically, temporally. Um, that totally. Uh, yeah. um, I think that um, it's really hard to fight a, a humane war when you're engaged in intervention and occupation with a big army. Um, although, you know, we, we should take seriously the possibility that even that form of American war relative to Vietnam or Korea or World War II, uh, let alone kind of earlier campaigns, including genocide on the American continent uh, uh, in the midst of settlement and in pushing the so-called frontier back, were far worse, Um, uh, in part because even in big footprint wars, Americans have accepted um, some forms of constraint that just didn't exist in the way war was fought for most of American history. And we can get into that, but it, it's, it's just a lot easier to say you're not going to um, engage in detainee abuse or torture if you just as Obama did stop c- capturing anyone and kill them instead and then go on to promise before you know vast public audiences that you'll follow the geneva conventions which um you know are are actually mainly about um occupation not air war um uh, and if you then go on when like you're laying out the 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 kind of um policy that will guide the drone program and the targeted killing program more generally if you say look you know i'm gonna tightly control civilian harm and if if the alternative to targeted killing is the first form of the war on terror you you prefer the second form morally um and so i i i think we, we could get into like how much causal effect um, the rhetoric of, of humanity and Obama's speeches has or the policies that he introduced had. But it, it seems natural to think that when you legitimate war by saying it's no longer brutal, um, then it's easier to conduct. And, and it, when it happens in new places, people are less apt to notice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're definitely going to return to the 21st century later in our conversation. Um, but uh, I want to go back to where you really start the book, um, which is uh, on Tolstoy and his critique of um, uh, of humane war. Um, and you know, reading this reading this part of the book, it did feel like this was sort of the like your 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 baby, like you you know you audited a college level Tolstoy course just to you know refresh your memory on uh, war and peace and uh, and you can tell that you spent a lot of time with this material um, and even though it is 
you know, the uh, furthest back in time that you go, um, there is this moral clarity to Tolstoy's writings, and you really use him as kind of this, uh, you know, this narrator throughout the the book. Um, and so, I would love to hear why you started with Tolstoy, and um, like what exactly he's doing for you. It's a great question. You know, it's always fun to like um, think back on alternative books one could have written because you can design them in so many different ways. And actually, with a number of the books I've written, like this one, that are attempting to put a short-term phenomenon in, in into relief, I've I've tried to start with longer-term perspective just to sh- try to illustrate something that something big changed recently. Um, And, you know, I do that in different ways in in this book, but I start with Tolstoy um, for a couple of reasons. First, he was present at the creation of of the idea of um, making war humane, which was a Swiss project originally. And I just was, was interested in the fact that since it seems like a good idea, all other things being equal, Tolstoy um, was bitterly critical of it um, when he heard about it or in other versions that he knew. Um, And starting with him both allowed me to kind of attempt to tell the, the, the kind of cover the whole sweep of the history of the international law concerning war but also to judge um, like how, how his pioneering critique um, kind of became applicable only in very specific conditions long after he lived, namely in our time, and especially with Obama's pivot to the humanized second form of the war on terror. So I wanted to present Tolstoy as someone who reminds us of an old set of anxieties that were actually, and I try to show this, far more openly discussed um, in public in the old days rather than recently, even as they they weren't really applicable. They didn't kind of be, become live in war making until um, the, the, some other developments and especially kind of the rise of American empire and later the humanization of American war pretty recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And I, I would love to hear just a little bit more, um, especially about Tolstoy's analogies to other um, what you call violent corporal practices, um, because I, I found these to be really salient. Uh, so, um, you know, like the, the, there was a project to humanize slavery, for instance, but it's not the, um, it, it was done very differently or for very different reasons than, uh, um, you know, the people who wanted to humanize war. Um, and so can you say a little bit about that? Sure. So, you know, I, I start really with with Tolstoy's earliest career as a literary figure. And then I, I spend some time with War and Peace itself because one of his characters actually defends the the proposition that we ought to leave war brutal. Um, but I, I wanted to show that Tolstoy kind of transcended that position, which seems unacceptable at, most, at least most of the time uh, to me. Um, and and really evolved into someone who wasn't so much claiming that brutal war was a good thing, but that 
even though making war humane is a good thing, it comes with certain risks. And it's in this, in the course of this argument, which I think is completely uh, applicable now, that Tolstoy kind of compared the idea of making war humane to these other corporal practices. So the first is humane slavery, since he was right that for a long time before abolition was plausible enough to, um, you know, a critical mass, the main reform of slavery was not its it, it challenging the right that humans enjoyed to own other humans, but making their mastery less cruel. Uh, this was known as amelioration, and 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 historians have actually you know said, uh, and I cite one Winthrop Jordan, a very famous one, that amelioration in a sense function to entrench chattel slavery um, by making it more acceptable. Um, and what I loved about Tolstoy's reminder about humane slavery is that it, it helped get at a kind of dynamic that is, is, is you know, potentially worth considering outside the, the you know, very specific historical context of Kind of reform of slavery, and I call it the advocates' compromise. Um, Tolstoy kind of illustrates that um, it was very tempting for some reformers, assuming that they couldn't end slavery, to reach a compromise with slavers, taking off the table whether they could own slaves and agreeing to fight with them over making it more humane. And this is exactly what the laws of war are about. And it's exactly what reformers interested in humanizing war do even today. Um, they often are neutral in the way Human Rights Watch is um, about whether wars are legal or should whether wars should happen. Um, and instead, they bicker with the state and the military about whether they're humane enough yeah. And, and Tolstoy's basic you know, question is, if it was wrong to make that compromise with slavers, what, is, what are the ethical stakes of the compromise reformers are making today with governments to make war humane, especially if it entrenches war? Okay. And then there's the second um, analogy, which is with the humanization of, of, of slaughter of non-human animals. And Tolstoy was kind of obsessed with this topic. And I try to show that, you know, he um, becomes the most famous vegetarian in the world. And he visits one of the new so-called humane slaughterhouses in, in his time, kind of sweeping the transatlantic. And he, he basically says that there's a risk here too. It's not for the advocate, but for the audience. And so I call it the beneficiary's bad faith. The basic idea is that what if we think we're better people because we, 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 we've had the meat that we end up eating slaughtered more humanely mm -hmm. than not. And, uh, it, you know, Tolstoy's basic worry is that we're committing a moral error and then masking 
our evil from ourselves. And again, the analogy to humane war is precise that, you know, Obama is kind of offering us a deal. You will let me fight more wars um, and I will promise to make you feel better about them by promising to make them humane. And, you know, that's, that's, I think it, it could function as an evasion, both when it comes to animal slaughter, if they're non-human and if they're human. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think these analogies are just so useful in laying out sort of like the, the moral landscape of humane war. Um, and, um, and you, so and another thing that you're doing in these early chapters that we won't really talk about, um, uh, but I think it's important. You're, you're really tracing these two genealogies, one of the humane war movement and then one of the peace movement. Um, and um, I, I just, I love the stuff on Bertha von Suttner, but we'll leave it to readers to uh, um, to, to dig into your early chapters to, to get that stuff. Um, but the thing that I want to jump to next is uh, how the crime of war itself um, was really a, um, like a, an important feature in in U.S. foreign policy discussions. Um, you know, you have uh, the, the Nuremberg trials where the U.S. is really, you know, like taking charge and um, uh, charging the Nazi elites with aggression. Um, you have, uh, you know, like Quincy Wright's first publication on try, uh, on how to try Wilhelm II for starting World War I. Um, and so, you know, before we um, before people really start caring, caring on mass about humane war, you can see how peace itself um, uh, was this uh, um, like aspiration, and war was the crime itself. Um, do you, can you talk about that? Absolutely. So you know, one of my agendas is to sh- show the kind of rise of the imperative of peace which left the aspiration to make war humane kind of um, peripheral. Um, and in part because it, it just wasn't credible that you could get it done. And a lot of the law of war after the kind of early Swiss efforts in Tolstoy's time is really about giving states more power to conduct more war more, more viciously. Um, but there, there, there are these peace movements. You know, Tolstoy is a radical even in relation to them because he's a pacifist and he just thinks that soldiers, if they're Christians, should lay down their arms. But a lot of other folks, more moderate, think that we have to use international law not to make war humane, but to pacify at least the transatlantic um, and maybe, you know, the globe. And but my basic argument is that this is, you know, an incredibly, it's an alternative and very noble um, agenda, but it has its own dark side because it ends up justifying Pax Americana. Um, And so I I spend a lot of time kind of showing how the aspiration for peace um, ends up leading to an American guaranteed transatlantic peace, a white peace, if you will, while committing the United States to global war in a way it's it's never been fought. And yet, through that trajectory, it, it comes to matter a lot for the legitimation of states that their, their, 
they're engaged in peace processes. And the most significant of these by far is at the end of World War II, where America is deeply involved with setting up um, a peace organization, the United Nations, and sponsoring the Nuremberg trials, which which I think are generally associated with trying Nazis for atrocity, but in fact, were mainly a trial of Nazis for beginning World War II. Um, and so it's, 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 it's very significant, including for the way debate unfolds in the Vietnam era, that um, America is justifying its ascendancy, um, at least in the 1940s, um, as, as, as a power that will bring peace. And then it, you know, enforcing norms against aggression of bad actors in the international system. Um, and that sets a big precedent um, for what follows um, for a couple of reasons. First, you know, it, 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 you have to have American hegemony for, for the, the rest of the 20th century's wars and indeed that, that in our own day to make sense. But second, um, it, it, it's, it's really important to recover a, an, an older form of consciousness in which, in part because, you know, people who were powerful and wealthy across the North Atlantic had suffered so much in World War I and II. It was widely understood that if you, if you interdict war, you take care of war crimes, whereas the reverse isn't true. And war is so bad for all the legal practices it allows and all the money it wastes that it would be better to kind of use the law to stop war, um, not just clean up its, its worst excesses. Um, and I want to suggest that's a position that in a sense got abandoned and reversed in subsequent history. Yes. Yeah. That's really well put. Um, your um, uh, discussion just then also made me think about the longer history of the United States and all this. Like, it, like obviously, like the U.S. is um, important for obvious reasons because you know this all ends up in the 21st century uh, war on terror. Um, but um, even in like the 19th century and the early 20th century, um, the U.S. is um, uh, like at least seen by the peace movement as being really important. And then um, you know, then yeah, once the U.S. you know rises to hegemony in the 1940s, it takes on this other importance. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if that's something that um, uh, I'm, I'm sure it's something that you've thought about because you wrote the book. But- Absolutely. And I'm, you know, I'm very curious to see, and, you know, I'm not a professional um, historian of, of my own country. Um, and I'm very curious to see like what the professionals make of my tourism. Yes, like. yeah. But, um, you know, I'm not at all trying to deny American belligerency all the way back. Um, and I emphasize that in sections on kind of so-called Indian war and in the Philippines. Um, but it, it strikes me as very important that um, not just these World War II activities and aftermath that I've just discussed with you, but kind of the, the fact that the peace movement really did take an, a, an enormously consequential bet on American power. Um, 
mainly because they thought it could help in in a, a a a world of squabbling European empires that weren't just committing lots of global violence, but bringing about World War One and Two. So it's true that you know peace advocates um, idealized the United States, um, and it it was let's say fairer to do so for that purpose at least for then then later because you know in the cold war um, america becomes a kind of um a, 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 it it advances freedom and abandons peace as as the kind of rationale for its geopolitics but before 1941 it it really does more credibly stand for at least transatlantic peace than global war and so it, you, I do cite some evidence of folks idealizing the United States, even as my main purpose when it comes to figures like Quincy Wright, is to show that the bet they made in the United States um, is very equivocal because it it ends up, you know, leading to um, um, not to world peace, but to a lot of brutal war of the kind Americans hadn't fought. Um, before they became, you know, the 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 kind of global hegemon of the era after mm-hmm. World War II. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, and so I think we should uh, jump ahead again to the Vietnam War. Um, this is obviously a really crucial um, you know, chapter in the history that you're telling. Uh, and so... Uh, the thing that I would like to focus on is how, um, you know, like the war was deeply unpopular um, at the end of the 60s, um, uh, but it really was, it really took this, you know, horrendous, you know, um, uh, set of atrocities, the My Lai Massacre, to make Americans feel even more passionately about it. And, um, you know, and this revelation helped end the war. Um, and this, as you show in the book, is very different from, you know, the other Seymour Hirsch revelation, the Abu Ghraib uh, revelations during the Iraq War, um, because those revelations did not lead to the end of the Iraq War. Um, so can you walk us through uh, this comparison? Sure. So I, I pay lots of attention to the Vietnam era f- for a couple of reasons. Um, one is just that Let's say it's it it it's unfolding seems strikes me as more faithful to what we've been talking about so far, especially the kind of premises at the end of World War II, um, than have ha- has been recognized. Um, I try to show that you know after not the buildup in 1965, um, critics of the war are really interested in whether America's the aggressor. Um, not whether it's committing atrocity. And indeed, their consciousness of the Nuremberg trials, I think more accurately, is that it was an aggression trial. And indeed, when Bertrand Russell reruns the Nuremberg trial, and later when one of the prosecutors 
um, who had been at Nuremberg kind of begins to think after Milai that his old work is relevant to the, the news he's reading. He also um, says, well, Nuremberg was an aggression trial. And if we're going to talk about Nuremberg in Vietnam, that was the title of a book this man, Telford Taylor, published. Um, then we've got to start with whether the war is legal or not. Um, however, it, when Milai is, is revealed, it, it drives um, a, a, a kind of very different outcome from what we've seen after September 11th. And essentially, I want to argue that that's because atrocity added um, fuel to the fire of a pre-existing concern with aggression and a pre-existing anti-war movement. Um, and it provided reasons for people to get even angrier or if they had sat out the fight so far to get angry for the first time. Um, and there, there, you know, we can talk about lots of different reasons for this outcome, but Milai was bound up in the creation of a, 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 a critical mass to, to end, end, um, the, end the war. Um, now that just w is the reverse of what happens as I see it after September 11th, when in uh, spring 2004, when Abu Ghraib is revealed, the war on terror is debugged and the program of endless war is in a sense reset um, in a more stable and sustainable form. And so it's really a point about how concern about the inhumanity of war can play in different ways. Um, and then we have to get into like, well, wh what was the intention of those who focus so insistently on detainee abuse and especially torture after 9-11, even though it was far less you know, bad um, than, than in lots of prior episodes in American history, including the Vietnam War itself, were they, were they just acting on principle that inhumanity is worth kind of attacking? Was it the fact that, you know, um, Bush's lawyers had specifically said that it, it, it wasn't illegal anymore? Was it the fact that it, it might, you know, be that, you know, atrocity is the best way of, of, of getting anti-war um, energy and it just didn't work out? Um, in any case, I think it's a dramatic moment because it's like the opposite of Milai. Yes. And we're still living with the war on terror, um, you know, almost 15 years after this torture debate and associated, you know, events. Yeah. Yeah. Well, your ch chapter in between the Vietnam War and September 11th, um, I think, does um, some really good work here because um, you show how, yeah, in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, um, the energy that was um, that had been powering the anti-war movement um, mutated into this um, new desire to isolate and critique particular crimes of war, you know, like tortures, um, civilian casualties. Um, and, it, and Human Rights Watch is probably the main character here, one of the main characters. Um, and you have a quote from Kenneth Roth, the current head of uh, Human Rights Watch, that I think sums up a lot of this, um, uh, a lot of these ideas. Uh, he, he writes that we weren't against war per se. We never took up the issue of who is the aggressor, who is the defender, who is at fault. Um, we always 
did stay neutral on those issues. Uh, and, uh, and so I would love to hear you talk about how Human Rights Watch is emblematic of, you know, these final decades of the 20th century. Sure. So I, I you know, I, I, I really hope that chapter gets attention because I cared a lot about it, mainly on the grounds that I think if we start any account of the war on terror before, sorry, just on September 11th, we'll have missed, you know, kind of the sources of the the drama after. Um, if if you follow my story, it's it's really a story of how far humane war um, had had kind of risen as as a cultural expectation um, to the point that the work of Bush's lawyers like John Yu is it, it, it turns out to be revealing mainly because like it hadn't been necessary to like lift the legal requirements on that on you know on torture before in American history, it was just committed without a second thought. And, you know, not, not at all to trivialize the effort of activists, but it, it, it has been much easier to contain the brutality of American war in our time than American war itself. And that can only be as a result of like the prior developments before September 11th, of which Human Rights Watch is a part now, my broader kind of picture of of the different pieces of the puzzle um, would include, you know, decolonization and what West Europeans no longer fighting brutal colonial wars are doing. A big cultural change I stress is that um, memories of World War Two kind of um, and especially the rise of Holocaust memory change people's conceptions of what can go wrong in war um, and lead to a, a, a new cultural demand for humane wars really without, I think, precedent in, in world history to the best of my knowledge. But it's also true that as the anti-war movement declines after Vietnam and as the Democratic Party, in a sense, purges um, the any non-interventionist um, beliefs after George McGovern's catastrophic presidential candidacy, it's very significant that you get a cause group like um, that, like Human Rights Watch, that's in a sense the anti-Nuremberg. Um, far from saying we should prioritize interdicting war, because if you do that, war crimes won't happen, it tolerates war in order to focus uh, its efforts on, on war crimes and, you know, reporting on them alone, um, no matter who's right or wrong in wars. And, you know, I think we can appreciate the ethical sensibility that went into that choice and the political calculus that went into that choice while also noting that it, it's, 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 it's not surprising that if you mainly have groups that, um, that focus on brutality, that it's very expectable then that it, it will happen, that brutality will get removed from war and war will continue, which is, of course, what we're trying to explain after September 11th, because it's what happened. 
Yeah. So I would I would love um, more clarity on this because, um, you know, like there have been a lot of uh, readings of your book that um, take issue with your treatment of activists, um, you know, like in Human Rights Watch or right. um, or uh, um, probably the, the more controversial one was uh, Michael Ratner, the, um, right. you know, the uh, very liberal, um, historically anti-war uh, lawyer uh, who in, uh, you know, after 9-11 uh, kind of shifted tactics to um, sort of the, uh, the humane war side of the spectrum rather than the um, peace imperative um, side of the spectrum. Um, and so uh, like, what are these people at fault for? Like, or is that even the right language? Yeah, I, I don't, I mean, I hope I didn't imply that they were at fault. I mean, I, what I tried to imply is that, um, it's it's illustrative of the kind of collective tragedy that the continuation of the war on terror has involved that they they played the roles they did so i'll i'll say a word in in their defense while stressing that the outcome was still tragic so i focus on human rights watch not because it's bad to have groups that focus let's say narrowly on what happens in war um, but, um, to illustrate this dynamic that in the absence of anti-war pressure, the stigmatization of atrocity can work to entrench war by removing, uh, the brutalities that can make, you know, more people, um, get angry about the continuation of war. In Ratner's case, I think it's even more dramatic because as you say and as i try to show with a lot of research he was an inveterate um critic of of u.s empire and an anti-war activist from the beginning of his you know time in in politics and law to the end of his life and in, in 2016 and yet um after 9 11 he was in a sense forced to participate in the humanization of endless war, which he did heroically by bringing cases on behalf of the interned at Guantanamo. And again, even if, um, you know, you, you'd say that it's, um, even if there was other strategic possibilities in that moment, which I don't think there were, um, you want lawyers defending clients and, and their ethics are, are not to run the whole you know, football game, but to run one play. And yet the the play that was run um, played into Barack Obama's hands. And so I think if we don't understand that the way that Bush's war was delegitimated allowed Obama to relegitimate the war on terror in its new form, then I don't think we can think about the future correctly. And so my my attention to activists is really important because I don't believe in in a kind of mindless activism where the idea is that at, you know if if you engage in a certain way, especially legally, you're just you know you don't kind of um, end up being part of 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 bad things happening, uh, uh, especially when you win. Um, and so this whole book is really about. Um, good things that have dark sides and bad consequences. And my, my attention to those activists is not at all trying to doubt or undercut them, but to say, we all need to care about how one agenda can hurt another. 
and figure out what to mm. do next. Yeah, and so, you know, so so 9-11 happens, um, the U.S. is attacked, and this is kind of a, an exogenous event in, in, in your story, but it's happening in a context where activists are increasingly focusing on um, war crimes rather than war itself. Um, uh, and and then, yeah, then the, the, the Bush administration it goes buck wild in in the first couple of years. That war is delegitimated, both um, uh, you know from activists um, outside the administration, and then even from uh, you know lawyers within the administration. Um, and then we get kind of like yeah, the apotheosis of your story, which is Obama. And so we've already talked about Obama. Um, and uh, you know, like at the beginning of our conversation, and kind of throughout, but I, I would. Love to hear more um, specifically on um, Obama's motivations for the humane war. Um, you know, like what, like what was motivating Obama? Um, you know, who had run as this, um, you know, presumably anti-war candidate, um, to then just like you know go, uh, you know, all in on humane war. So I, you know, again, I'm I'm trying in in that last chapter to tell a balanced and fair story in part because I think it's it's amazing how far Obama was kind of meditative in public about his choices. Um, and I try to illustrate how he formulated some pretty serious criticisms of his own actions. Um, and his speeches are are really, I think, gold mines in this regard for anyone interested in morality and power. So you're right; he comes into office, he's selectively, you know, opposed the Iraq War, you know, and and left it, it, it open to those out in the audience to assume that he would turn the page on the war on terror. And it, in in fairness, you know, it it was widely expected he would. Um, but he didn't. Um, and we know that from his first days, he's, he's, he's kind of invented this, this new sensibility for all the presidential candidates that followed that you, you promised to control American war better, um, while also fighting it, um, in this endless and humane way. And so I think a few things converge first, if you sat there in you know 2004 through 8 you you would infer that what's most important about american war is that the brutality of it stop not that it stop because that's what the kind of conversation was about um and it it gave him so much legitimacy a kind of space to maneuver politically in the first part of his administration and i try to show that you know, journalists who'd condemned Bush's brutality ran victory laps for Obama just because he tore up some memos uh, around torture that weren't being followed anyway. Um, and so Obama has kind of a, a policy space. He also knows that, you know, his electoral fortunes you know, because he's only in his first term, will depend on whether he keeps the homeland safe. So that's the other pole. And so he chooses to reinvent the war on terror. Um, and 
when he goes to Oslo to accept the Nobel Peace Prize at the end of his first term, he's already very clear that America has to fight war. And, you know, he gets religious and suggests that it's it's like an eternal thing. Um, But he also is 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 brilliant on what the constraints are. He name checks the founder of the Red Cross who, you know, Tolstoy had gotten anxious about. He says, we will follow the Geneva Conventions no matter what. Uh, he says, what, what, what makes war ethical, um, even if it's endless, is its humanity. And then more amazingly, I think, is when he rolls out how he he thinks the presidents should fight the drone war and targeted killings more generally, which had been secret when he ramped it up, you know, tenfold um, compared to Bush when it came to drone strikes, many more places and massive reliance, new reliance on special forces, like the kinds of teams that killed Osama bin Laden. And Obama there goes even further and says, you know, we we have to do this. The alternative is the brutal war you elected me not to fight. Um, and I promise that I will pour over the kill lists on Tuesdays and approve who who dies. And above all, when there's there's not a battlefield, I won't let our people or our drones strike if there's going to be any collateral damage or civilian harm which is a a promise that goes way beyond what the law requires. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's really that speech in 2013 at the national defense university that caused me to write this book because he, he was offering himself a deal and he was offering Americans a deal that, that made the humanity of, of ongoing war central to our geopolitical posture as it remains today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think that um, that speech and your reflections on it, um, especially uh, that, that's the speech where Medea Benjamin interrupts, right? right? Yeah, that, right. That, that stuff is um, just so excellent. And it's, uh, um, I, I think you're right that it reveals a lot about um, uh, Obama's uh, sense of the endless war and uh, right. um, uh, why it's necessary, et cetera. Um, but another sort of reading though. Um, so, okay. So like one, one, one thing that your book is doing is trying to figure out, you know, why we have endless war. Um, and I think that they, there are, um, you know, like alternative readings. You I mean, you acknowledge some of them in your introduction. Um, uh, but, you know, like wh- what about, um, uh, I don't know, like the, uh, the the technology story or kind of like the um you know like the material needs of the military industrial complex um like what would you say about these um you know potentially alternative readings they're they're right and you know i you know incorporate in my book kind of the the geopolitical story of american hegemony that we've discussed and you know um and and i do mention you know the abolition of the draft and its its feared consequences, and of course, I I have a, a little bit at least on um, the kind of military industrial complex and 
and and the technological story um and and so what that means is that the the contribution that the humanization process makes is is one factor among others and i don't believe it's you know near the top of the list it's just that no one had focused that it was on the fact that it's on the list um and i i think it's very significant because um you you don't find presidents defending um the military industrial uh complex or you know getting geeky about the wonders that technology allows in 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 the war space um but we do find precisely because it's a good thing not a bad thing a, a barack obama advertising the humanity of the war as a, a, a kind of morally relevant to letting it go on and so you know what i'm trying to do is not so much kind of um provide a complete picture of why endless war continues as focus on the morality that um a, a good thing can a bad a bad thing um and it 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 just didn't seem like that had been said and was worth saying saying precisely because it it should be shocking uh more shocking that aside from like you know geopolitical imperatives and material interests um morality itself can play a role in the workings of mm-hmm. power yeah and i i just want to say a little bit something a little bit about the um the way you bookend the book um so you know you start off with um these uh portraits of weddings one in connecticut one in kandahar um you know the wedding in connecticut has a um a photographer using a drone um to take photos and then in kandahar there's a, a bit of a scare at some point about um you know like a, a drone striking the wedding because you know historically weddings have been um uh, pretty frequent targets of uh, of drones and then in the um epilogue of your book you talk about um like you return again to drone warfare um and i think that this was a really good move on your part um uh, because it uh you know like this this book is about the humanization of war um but um you know like uh like humane doesn't necessarily mean it's good in fact it's extremely bad for the people that have to live underneath um you know this like violence from the sky um uh and uh, yeah, so I, do you want to say something about that choice? Sure. So um, it, I, again, I want to I want to avoid overstating the mm. importance of drones in the sense that you know the turn to drone warfare was part of a larger targeted killing program, and there was an equal escalation in um, the use of special forces, which are are also technologized, you know, with all their, you know, infrared and, you know, advanced weaponry and so forth, but that don't have the same symbolic presence in these debates as drones do. Um, and in fact, at the end of the book, I not only return to drones, but also, you know, um, remind us that there's something else coming, so-called autonomous weapon systems yes. um, or robot wars, um, slaughter bots sometimes called 
by their critics, which don't require the human piloting that at least drones still involve. But, you know, what I want to raise with the drones, with both at the beginning and end, and, you know, the technological humanity more generally is, of course, whether it rationalizes violence, but also whether it actually could reduce it too, and whether that's good or bad. Um, so in the, the contrast of the weddings you mentioned, I have in, in, in you know, the foreign wedding, the American drone end up not striking the wedding um, and asking, well, is that, does that make it all right? Because um, drones mainly surveil rather than kill. And even when they, you know, kill you know, cr- you know, criminals, um, they're, they're deployed in places, um, that are kind of across a, a geopolitical hierarchy. Um, and I close by asking like, what would it be like to have a, a humane global policing where humanity isn't just rationalizing violence, but actual nonviolent control? Um, cause I do think we're, tending in that direction. And I get that, you know, in Milai and Abu Ghraib, it makes sense mobilizationally to say we've just experienced or someone else has just experienced the worst violence ever. Um, but what if the honest truth is that violence is in decline, but domination isn't? And maybe humanity is part of that sinister story. So that's the reason I begin and end with it, not at all to trivialize violence or those who oppose it, but to ask what's really gone wrong um, in our time and what are the ways in which humanity can abet nonviolent domination, which could be scary too. Yeah, it's all very frightening. Um, And so I I think that's a a good place to leave our discussion of the book. Um, There's obviously a lot more in it, and I encourage listeners to pick up a copy. Um, And before we go, can you share with listeners what you're working on now? Sure. So I'm uh, I'm, uh, giving uh, a series of lectures in uh, February and March at the University of Oxford on Cold War liberalism. Um, And... I just don't think that um, movement has been ever written about as such, and yet it's had such a consequential impact on our debates, including debates since the end of the Cold War about what liberals should do and what liberal societies ought to be like. So that's my that's what I'm doing right now. Um, and once I finish with that, which will appear as a, a little book with Yale University Press, I'm going to embark on my main next projects, which have to do with things like gerontocracy, with you know, a constitutional law, with the Vietnam War. And, and I don't know how long it'll take me to do any or all of those. Well, that's really exciting on both fronts. Uh, I yeah, I can't wait to read them whenever they come out. Um, so Sam, again, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It was an absolute blast. Thank you. It was a privilege. And um, I've been chatting with Samuel Moyne about his latest book called Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. 
And you've been listening to New Books in History, a channel with the New Books Network.